It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When the sun rose over Japan last Friday... There was no reason to think this would be a day that would go down in Japanese history. The former and longest serving Prime Minister Shinzo Abe stood outside a train station in Nara, a city in central Japan, giving a campaign speech on behalf of the local candidate. Just another speech in the run up to another election. But he had barely begun when. The nation of Japan is in shock today with news that the former uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was shot. Eyewitnesses say that Mr Abe was shot twice from behind while giving a speech in the street. Lying on the street, a strange-looking gun made of steel pipes and held together with black tape. Officials say that his heart has stopped pronounced dead at the age of 67. This was a brazen act of gun violence that happened during broad daylight. It would be hard to overstate just how much of a shock this is in normally non-violent Japan. His assassination prompts a country to ask itself, who are we? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the assassination of Shinzo Abe. I'm Richard Lloyd Parry, the Asia editor of The Times, based in Tokyo. Richard, take us back to Friday morning. In a place called Nara in Japan, what was Shinzo Abe doing there? Shinzo Abe was making a very routine election campaigning stop in the city of Nara in central Japan. On Sunday the 10th, Japan had an election for half of the seats in its upper house. 
And this campaign will be going on for a couple of weeks. And as a senior figure in the party, the Liberal Democratic Party, and as a former prime minister, Shinzo Abe, like lots of his fellows, had been traveling around the country, stopping in local cities and giving speeches to give a a fillip to local candidates for the party who were standing there. And he was in front of a local station, a commuter station. It was the middle of the morning and he stood up and took a microphone. He was just standing on the pavement. He wasn't even elevated. There was no kind of podium or stage to give this speech, uh, attempting to boost the local candidate. And what happened? There was a, a loud bang behind him. Followed three seconds later by another bang. And the second time, Shinzo Abe fell to the ground. People rushed to him and there was a kerfuffle behind him where a man wearing a surgical mask and carrying a bag was eventually tackled to the ground by security officers and police. This turned out to be a man called Tetsuya Yamagami, a 41-year-old man, who had shot Shinzo Abe using a homemade gun, which he was still clutching in his hand, a very bizarre, crude-looking device made out of metal pipes and black tape. What do we know about him so far? What do we know about why he shot Shinzo Abe? Yes, this came out fairly soon in briefings that the police officers gave to the Japanese media. He had a grudge against Shinzo Abe, which was based around conflict in his family. He reported, and and this seems to be true, that his mother was a long-standing member of the Unification Church, the Christian organization known around the world as the Moonies. And Mm. she had for a Mm. long time been a member of the Moonies. And according to her son, given away the family's fortune to the Moonies, donated almost all her money to the Unification Church. And as a result, the family had been impoverished. Tetsuya Yamagami's mother was declared bankrupt. And as a child, he and his siblings grew up in conditions of some hardship. And because of this, he had a resentment for the Unification Church. He considered attacking a leader of the Unification Church in Japan. He found that too difficult. But he blamed Shinzo Abe for the support he, as a politician, had allegedly given the Unification Church. And so he chose him as the second best target. So, I mean, the, the whole thing is very bizarre. But if what has come out in these reports is true, then Japan's, you know, most grave political assassination, really, since the Second World War, was perpetrated not for reasons directly connected to politics, but because of a kind of family squabble connected to religion within this obscure family in the city of Nara. And was Shinzo Abe particularly known for his support of the Moonies? He wasn't known for that at all. 
the Moonies Unification Church, you know, certainly it's it's no secret that they are established here. But their connections with the Liberal Democratic Party are, are not well known. And this is something that's coming out now and is being rather timidly unpicked by the Japanese media. Shinzo Abe himself was certainly not a member of the Unification Church or a worshipper in any formal sense. But the Unification Church, which was established in South Korea in the 1950s, has throughout its history been conservative in character and avowedly anti-communist. And broadly, that is also the political alignment of Shinzo Abe's wing of the Liberal Democratic Party. So it may be that, although he wasn't affiliated in a formal sense, the Unification Church and Shinzo Abe and the LDP identified common goals and common interests and may have had mutual support in that sense. The full facts have not come out yet, but if the reports in the Japanese media are correct, and they are fairly consistent over the last few days, then what happened was that Tetsuya Yamagami was very angry with his mum because she gave all the family's money away to the Unification Church. He couldn't get to the leader of the Unification Church. So as a second best, he killed the former Prime Minister of Japan. Wow. And Richard, for you, when the news broke on Friday morning, when you heard what had happened, what did you think? Yeah, well, I was actually on holiday at the time. I was taking a little break by the seaside in Japan. The news came out, and as a journalist, you get used to dealing with unexpected breaking stories. And by and large, it takes quite a lot to shock me these days. But I was, I must say, I was shocked. And I think everyone in Japan was. I mean, the killing of someone as important and influential as this in any country in the world would be remarkable and, and shocking. But for this to happen in Japan really was amazing because Japan is such a safe, non-violent society. Mm. And events like this really do happen very rarely. They're not completely unprecedented. They have happened in the past. But you really have to go back decades for a moment when they happened with any kind of regularity or this sort of level. I understand you actually lived next door to him. Tell me about that. I did. For five years, my family and I lived in an apartment that was in the next door block to Shinzo Abe's home while he was prime minister. The official residence of the prime minister of Japan is famously supposed to be haunted. And not, not everyone believes in goats, but the story is that Shinzo Abe's wife didn't like the atmosphere there. So instead of living in the kind of rather grand official residence, he lived with his very elderly mother and his wife in a very comfortable but not palatial apartment in West Central Tokyo. Mm. And in the rather kind of old-fashioned apartment block over the road, I also lived. And we used to see him, you know, when I was walking my young children to their nursery. Quite often a convoy of black cars would go by, three black limos, driven very carefully and slowly. And although we couldn't see them, we couldn't see inside because of the darkened windows, we knew this was the Prime Minister of Japan on his way to work. Quite remarkable. You don't expect the Prime Minister to be living 
amongst uh, normal residents in, in that way. No, so close to people like me. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's unthinkable that in any other G8, G7 country, yeah. I think that would be possible. I mean, a foreign journalist would not be able to work or live within 100 yards of Joe Biden or Boris Johnson or Emmanuel Macron or anyone else like that. No, it, it's a sign of how relaxed Japan is about security, or at least uh, how relaxed it has been hitherto. I mean, there were plenty of police about. There was a kind of sentry box with a policeman in front of you know, this apartment block where he lived. And there was often a bus, you know, with police round the corner. They were rather discreet about it, but they were present. And we would we would say hello every morning to the, the very nice policemen who were on duty. And you would also see the kind of Secret Service type guys with the curly wires in their ears. Mm. But compared to any Western national leader, the security was really strikingly light. And we used to comment on it at the time. And Richard, what is it about Japan? I mean, you've lived there for a long time now. What is it about Japan that made that possible for so long? Yeah, I mean, it it was possible for a long time. And, and you know, until this weekend, it didn't seem crazy and negligent to most people. Mm. I mean, Japan has extremely low rates of crime of all kinds, including violent crime. The whole atmosphere and the way in which people live with the idea of crime is completely different in Tokyo from a city like you know, London, New York, or Paris. If my partner or my daughter are out, I would have no concerns about them walking home after dark really? through the big park near our home, for example. You don't need to worry about things like that. So that that's one thing. Crime levels are very low. People feel safe. The other thing is that in terms of the kind of international terrorist context, Japan feels very remote from the turmoil of the Middle East, the conflicts of the Middle East, which have driven terrorism over the last 20 years in the West, to feel remote here. What has the reaction been? I mean, you know, given that gun crime is so rare, given that Japan is normally so safe, how have people responded to this assassination? I mean, everyone I've spoken to about it has talked of how amazed and, and shocked they are. There's an air of unreality, I think, still. At the site of this assassination, there were hundreds of people the next day putting out flowers and so on. Having said that, I wouldn't say that people have been stunned into inaction in any way. I mean, life is continuing. The upper house elections went ahead on Sunday as usual, and the results and the turnout were, were much as one would have expected. And there certainly hasn't been a kind of Princess Diana-like outpouring of grief um, in any sense. You know, Shinzo Abe was was a respected figure. Plenty of people liked him. But he wasn't, I would say, a national leader who was loved. He was divisive. I think a lot of people voted for him who didn't necessarily like or even trust him, simply because they felt there wasn't much of an alternative. The Japanese opposition is so divided. So it would be an exaggeration, I think, a misleading to suggest that he was a beloved, twinkly-eyed figure who everyone is now sobbing for. I mean, I think everyone agrees that political assassination is an absolute tragedy, and it goes far beyond the death of an individual. You know, it is an attack on democracy itself. Coming up, how Shinzo Abe changed Japan. 
but first. I'm Fiona Hamilton, the crime and security editor of The Times. I cover breaking stories from terrorist attacks to the world of organised crime, and I love delving into what's really going on in policing. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Last week's assassination was not only shocking because of its violence in an exceptionally safe country, but also because of the target. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that he is the most important and influential Japanese prime minister in the nearly 30 years I've been covering Japanese politics. He had two terms in office. His last one was eight years, and at the end of that, he became the longest-serving prime minister Japan has had in modern times. So that in itself is an achievement. You know, Japan used to be known as a country where the prime minister changed every year, and even people like me struggled to keep track of who it was sometimes. Mm. But he really brought stability in that sense. He also brought a very pronounced political ideology, a right-wing nationalist conservatism, which had hitherto not been the dominant strand in the Liberal Democratic Party. It was more of a sort of centre-right party for a lot of its existence. And he brought very clear ideas 
about changes he wanted to bring to Japan. How much was he influenced by his childhood? I mean, what propelled him in that slightly nationalistic direction? Shinzo Abe emerged from one of Japan's most prominent political families. His grandfather, Kishi, was prime minister of Japan in the 1960s. His father, Shintaro, was a foreign minister. He was born with a, a political silver spoon in his mouth, and he inherited his father's constituency on his death. This is a common pattern still in, in Japanese politics. There are a lot of second and third generation politicians, and Shinzo Abe was one of those. And he inherited the political ideology of his father and grandfather, who came from the right of the Liberal Democratic Party. His early life is not particularly impressive. He went to a, a good university, wasn't particularly serious there, drove a sports car, played a lot of mahjong, didn't seem to be by any means a brilliant student. He went to the United States briefly to study, didn't get a degree there, came back, his father gave him a job, he worked for a company for a bit. And then when his father died, his older brother was apparently not interested in taking over the seat, so Shinzo Abe took it over. But it, it's really not until a few years into his time as an MP that he really displayed individual political ideas. There is a sense that many of his policies were about trying to change post-war Japan effectively. I mean, tell us a bit about that, sort of how much has modern Japan been shaped by the experience of World War II? Profoundly shaped. The defeat by the United States in 1945 and the seven-year occupation of the country by the United States changed the country forever. And these changes were institutionalised in the Constitution, which was imposed by the US occupation. And one of the key features of that constitution is Article 9, the so-called Peace Clause, which says very clearly that Japan can't have an army, navy or an air force. Now, the United States, very soon after making this rule, began to regret it because the Cold War was developing and they realised that it didn't really suit them to have a Japan that was completely unarmed and, and totally dependent on them. So the so-called self-defence forces were established as a kind of euphemistic way of having armed forces without calling them that. But nonetheless, the peace clause remains there. And it is for nationalists and conservatives a source of shame and embarrassment and something they very much want to get rid of. To people on the other side of the political spectrum, people on the left, it's the opposite. It's something that Japan should be very proud of and which they will struggle to preserve. So changing the constitution has for a long time been the dream of people like Shinzo Abe. He called it his long-cherished dream. And that was something that he would very much like to have brought about, but was unable to. What took him from being an MP who effectively inherited his seat to one of the most significant prime ministers the country's known? Yeah, the answer to that question isn't obvious. And it's interesting if you compare Shinzo Abe's two terms in office, because he was first elected in 2006 and was forced to resign exactly a year later after a very undistinguished 
12 months in power. There were scandals, there were missteps, poor discipline in his cabinet. He was one of that run of short-lived Japanese prime ministers who came and went for a year or so and who no one remembered afterwards. Part of the problem he had was chronic illness. He's long suffered from a very debilitating condition called ulcerative colitis, which affects your stomach and your digestion and so on. It's very painful. But he overcame that and in 2012 came back. And eight years later, he was still there in power as the longest serving prime minister. Why did he last so long? Why was he so successful? People have different views on this. My view is that the biggest reason for Shinzo Abe's success was the complete evisceration and failure and absence of the opposition in Japan. It's a long story, but to simplify it, Japan is not effectively a two-party state. It's designed along Westminster lines. You have elections, you have a parliament, they're all perfectly free and fair. And the idea being that you have two parties who will compete in ideas for popularity. Uh, and, And it works if sooner or later they alternate and one gives power to the next. Now, in Japan, that doesn't happen for various reasons. The opposition is pathetic, they're rubbish. They're in disarray, they're disorganized, they're splintered. And it's been a long time since they offered any credible challenge to the Liberal Democratic Party, which is the opposite. It's a very efficient, very well-run and ruthless political machine. So that is the biggest reason. And that has worked very much to Shinzo Abe's advantage and continues to work to the advantage of his successors. Having said that, he also, you know, very brilliantly and early on, attached his name to an economic policy, Abenomics. Let's talk about Shinzo Abe. He doesn't have his own ism yet, but he does have his own nomics. And the markets are obviously very excited by the prospect of Abenomics in Japan. And just remind us, sort of, how bad was the economy in Japan and what exactly did Arbonomics do? Well, Japan's economy, like others, overheated in the 1980s based on inflated property prices and in the way that bubbles do, the bubble burst in the early 1990s and the economy began to shrink and falter. There were bankruptcies, there was unemployment. The concern in Japan that the economy might be approaching the bubble stage well, had to just evaporate. <laughs> That's Toyo Gyoten, who worked in Japan's Ministry of Finance at the height of the economic crisis in the late 80s. He made these comments in a documentary broadcast in 2000. Uh, it was quite obvious that uh, it is not a time to talk about tightening. <laughs> but anyway, but the fact remains... That we made a mistake. Really, Japan has never recovered its vim, even 30 years later. Uh, mm. Successful governments have struggled to do that. And so, Abenomics, I mean, the other good thing about it was that it was very simply presented. He talked about the three arrows, which were public spending on infrastructure, an easing of the money supply, relaxing the money supply, and liberalizing the economy in order to increased competitiveness within industries that had often been dominated by cartels and protected interests. And the first two, you know, he managed to some extent, 
the last, uh, the, the results were much more mixed. That's still a job that Japan is pressing on with. It hasn't been fully achieved yet. Was it judged to be a success, Arbonomics? I mean, the goal was to increase inflation. Japan was suffering from deflation at the time. I think people look back on it as better than nothing, but certainly no one would claim that Japan has overcome its economic difficulties or you know is out of the woods. And the current prime minister, Mr. Kishida, is talking about it in a different way. He now talks about establishing a new kind of capitalism, which sounds very ambitious and is, which competitiveness will maintain, but inequalities will also be dealt with. So one of the criticisms of Abenomics is that it increased inequality and it helped people at the top, but not those at the bottom. And how do you think the Japanese people think of Shinzo Abe? Or, you know, judged him as, as a prime minister? Yes, Shinzo Abe was an extremely successful political leader by the only measure that matters, which is winning elections. I think he won six elections of different types through his career. There was opposition to him. One of the things he did was, to some extent, to wake up and galvanize the old Japanese left. Immediately after the Second World War, the left was very strong in politics. Labour unions were very strong. Japan still has a, a, a communist party which wins seats in double figures at every election, hmm. although it has no chance of, of forming a government. And, for example, when Shinzo Abe introduced changes to the laws governing Japanese security policy, which were intended to give the self-defense forces more freedom to operate abroad, that really created a, a new movement of opposition and protest that we hadn't seen for a good number of years. And there were big demonstrations outside the Prime Minister's office in the centre of Tokyo. I remember going there and seeing people holding posters of Abe with a Hitler moustache. Protest rallies are rare in Tokyo, yet tens of thousands of Japanese stayed out late last night, demonstrating in front of the parliament against Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's highly debated national security bill, which will allow Japan to take military action abroad for the first time since World War II. The intensity of the suspicion and mistrust was that strong. Now, those people were, were in a minority, but it was a significant minority. And that was the extent to which he divided the country as well as bring it together. What do you think his legacy will be in terms of, you know, the policies that he's shaped? Which of them will end up shaping Japan over the next few generations? It's certainly true that in the last 10 to 20 years, politics has undergone a shift in Japan. People sometimes say that Japan is moving to the right. Oh, becoming more nationalist. I don't think it's as simple as that. And there are various factors in play. One of them is Japan's situation in, in East Asia. It finds itself under a lot more pressure than it ever was even during the Cold War from North Korea, but above all from China, this emerging superpower, which is increasingly assertive and aggressive about its right to territory, some of which Japan claims is its own. And that is one of the things that is encouraging this move towards a more proactive security policy, more spending on defence, 
greater freedom for the self-defense forces. That those are all goals that Abe pursued. And I think in many ways he failed in, in his goals. He was never able to change the constitution because his vision and his dreams and his ambition outstripped the aspirations of most Japanese people. He was always ahead and beyond popular opinion. I suspect that in 10 years, 20 years, when we look back on this period, Shinzo Abe, as as a man, as an individual, will come to seem less important than, than he does now, immediately after his assassination. I think he represented and he, he harnessed to some extent trends in Japanese politics and Japanese society. But I don't think as an individual leader, he achieved all that much, really. I mean, by the end, certainly, a lot of his signature policies had fizzled out. Do you think part of his legacy for Japan will be in, in the way that he died? Is that going to have a profound effect on the country? That's a very interesting question, and that remains to be seen. I think inevitably the VIP protection afforded to Japanese politicians is going to become a lot stricter, a lot tighter. Perhaps the age of innocence in Japan is over now to some extent. However, whether it has a, a, an effect beyond that, I, I don't know. Japan is a country that changes very slowly. In, in superficial ways, it changes all the time. Fashions change, buildings are torn down and ripped up and rebuilt all the time. The look of the cities changes. But Japanese society and Japanese politics change a lot more slowly. And people in Japan are horrified by what happened. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to reassess their whole society. I mean, in some ways, I think what we're learning about this attack and the motives behind it, it seems to have been a bizarre aberration. If that's the case, then I think Japanese people will be reluctant to shake up their whole system and steer the ship too drastically in a new direction. So it won't sort of change the national psyche? I don't think it will. If war was to break out on the Korean Peninsula, if China was to invade Taiwan, then that would be a decisive psyche-altering moment. Everything would change in Japan. It would not be the same world afterwards. Hmm. But I don't think the assassination of Shinzo Abe is going to be that kind of an event. On Tuesday morning, Shinzo Abe's funeral took place. Crowds lined the streets of Tokyo... And unlike most events in Japan, there was a huge security presence. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Asia editor at The Times, Richard Lloyd Parry. You can find all of Richard's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel, Sam Chantarasak and Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design 
was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.